You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So it's Father's Day, and once again, happy Father's Day to our dads. And later on today, I will get to go celebrate Father's Day with my dad. They still live on the west side of town. My dad's 88 years old, so we'll get to go be with them, and I'm looking forward to that. And I have many good memories of my dad, and I was thinking about that as I was preparing for um, today and this passage that we're going to jump back to here in our Genesis series in Genesis 31. And one of the things I continually remember about my dad is his willingness to spend time with me. You see, my dad was a construction superintendent, and so his days were pretty rhythmic. They all pretty much began and ended at the same time. He would get up around 4, 4.30 in the morning at the latest 5, and I would hear him get up to get ready for work because as the project superintendent, he had to be there before all the contractors, so he was always there plenty early to be ready for the day and to plan and direct the day. And then he usually didn't get home till at least 5.30, sometimes 6. And if they were pouring concrete or doing stuff that just had to go until it got done, then he would get home later. But usually around 5.30 or 6. So my dad worked long days. And one of the many things I appreciate about my dad is he modeled for me and taught me a really good work ethic. He was an extremely hard worker. But he would come home at the end of a long day like that and would be exhausted. And understandably so. And I would remember as a kid asking him, you know, like to play basketball or go do this or go do that. And most of the time he would say yes. And in particular, I have these vivid memories of playing basketball with my dad in the driveway, knowing that it was a long day for him. He's exhausted and yet he still made time to be with me and to play with me. And I've, I've never forgotten that and I've tried to remember that as my own kids were growing up, trying to be available for them. But Father's Day has, has good memories for me. And for some of you, it certainly does, and I'm grateful for that. But for others of you, it doesn't. And I understand and appreciate that. Then in a culture where over half of our households now have no dad present, that, that this is a reality, that Father's Day isn't necessarily a, a, a good memory. In those homes, dad is absent or he's left the scene, or he never was on the scene, or dad is there, but he's passive, or even worse, dad is there, but he inflicts pain and difficulty. And so, like any holiday, there are a number of emotions that can begin to swirl for us, just depending on what our frame of reference is and, and, and what's in front of us. And so, wherever you're at on Father's Day, whether you had a father like I do who you um, have great memories with or you have a father who for some reason is missing or you have a father who you associate with a lot of pain and a lot of heartache. Regardless, it's so fundamentally important for us to remember who our heavenly father is like because he is the ultimate father and yet all of us understandably filter who he is through the frame of reference of our own fathers or lack Thereof, And so as we come to God's word once again, it's so important for us to remind ourselves of what God is, is really like. Because the Bible really is about him. 
The Bible is his story. We're a part of that story, but the Bible is really God revealing himself to us. And once again, we're going to see what our Heavenly Father is like in this passage that we'll study here this morning. But I also realize and appreciate that we've been away from Genesis for a couple weeks now by design. So as we jump back to Genesis chapter 31, just some necessary history and frame of reference for us as we dive into this chapter. So if you'll remember back with me, Jacob cheats his brother Esau out of his birthright and then robs him of the blessing that should have been Esau's. And Esau is angry to the point that he wants to literally kill his brother. So mom and dad, Isaac and Rebekah, wisely decide we need to get Jacob out of here. So they send him far away to go find family and eventually to find a wife in the, in the region of Haran. And he finds Uncle Laban, if you'll remember, who is his mom's brother. And so he finds that family in that faraway land, and God promises to be with him. Remember that God meets him on that journey and says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'll bless you, in fact, I'll bless all people through you, and I'm gonna watch over you, and I'm not gonna leave you till I've done what I've promised. So Jacob comes to this land, finds this family, and begins to work, and his uncle recognizes not only his work ethic, but also his gifting in animal husbandry and, and being a shepherd. And so he says, hey, you work here X amount of years, I'll give you my daughter Rachel, because you're obviously in love with her and want to get married to her. And so Jacob works the seven years, and on the wedding night, Uncle Laban pulls a fast one and slips Leah in there instead. And so Jacob wakes up the next morning and now he's married to Leah and that wasn't part of the deal. So he goes back to his uncle, if you remember, says, hey, I want to work for Rachel. And he says, okay, we can arrange that. So I'll give you Rachel if you'll work seven more years. So he does. And so now it's been 14 years. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 30. And in the chapter that precedes this one, Jacob comes to Uncle Laban and says, I want to go home. I'm ready to leave, I'm ready to go. Uncle Laban will not take no for an answer, but says, you have to stay, and let's work something out. So Jacob works out this deal with him and says, okay, I'll continue to tend your flocks, but any of the rams or lambs that are speckled, striped, spotted, dark colored, I get to keep those and you get to keep the rest. They shake hands, they say, hey, good deal, and God blesses. And now Jacob becomes exorbitantly wealthy. God blesses his flocks. They grow and grow and grow, multiply. So do Laban's, but Jacob's grow far better. And so now Jacob has become a cash cow for Laban. Laban is benefiting and has benefited all these years from Jacob's work, but now Jacob is too. And things are going really well, presumably, until we get to this chapter now that we're about to read. It is a long chapter. We're going to do the whole thing because it is loaded for us. So we're going to walk our way through it. So if you have a Bible now, open to Genesis chapter 31. Turn on your phone. Turn on your tablet. However you get there, I'll put it up on the screens. And here we go. So Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gathered all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. So presumably, assumably, when Jacob came to Uncle Laban, Uncle Laban had daughters, but he didn't have any sons. So these sons were presumably born now in the 20 years that Jacob has been with his uncle. And they are feeling threatened by Jacob and by his wealth. And they are accusing him literally of stealing from their dad. And dad begins to 
in his mind at least, put two and two together and begins to think the same thing and Jacob picks up on this. And it's at this point we see that God intervenes and he says, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. So now Jacob calls a family meeting and here's how it goes. He sends word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. And he said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. Now, had Laban literally done that? Well, we don't know for sure, but we know that it's been multiple times, and this can be a euphemism for time and time again, he's changed my wages, and we know that Uncle Laban has done that. He has cheated Jacob through this whole process. Jacob goes on, however, God hasn't allowed him to harm me, and so God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. And then he explains how this worked. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. And what did Jacob get to keep out of the flocks? The ones that were speckled, striped, or spotted. How did he come up with that idea when he was negotiating with Uncle Laban? Well, the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. So God intervened in all this. Evidently, he gave Jacob the idea that when he and Uncle Laban were negotiating for what his wages would be if he stayed that additional six years, this was actually directed by God, and God clearly blessed all this and has prospered Jacob. So now, a miracle is about to take place. Here it comes. Then Rachel and Leah replied, do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you to do. Did these sisters ever agree on anything? And the answer is no. They have been at odds, at least since Jacob has been a part of their life. And yet, miraculously, they agree. And they say, we're with you. We're in as a family. They are a united front. So this is what happens. Jacob puts his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all his livestock ahead of them, along with all the goods he had accumulated and put on Haram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. A couple details here for us that are significant. If you'll remember back with me to Genesis chapter 28, I believe, when Abraham sent his servant to go find a wife for Isaac, which eventually happened to be Rebecca, Uncle Laban's sister at the time, if you'll remember. He sent him with 10 camels full of goods and, and money to give in exchange for a wife for Isaac when she was eventually found. We know historically and archaeologically that this is just when camels were beginning to be domesticated by people. If you owned a camel, you were exorbitantly rich. In many ways, this would be like the coolest, most expensive car you could think of right now. Can you picture it in your mind? Okay, and now you have so many of those that all of your kids and all of your wives get to have one of their own. 
That's how many camels Jacob has at this point in time. He is exorbitantly wealthy. God has prospered him amazingly. And when it says he drove all his livestock, this is not just a usual day's jaunt in moving the flocks. This is driving everyone as fast and as hard as he can. This is getting out of town as quickly as possible. I don't know if you've ever taken a family vacation or taken a road trip or whatever where you forget something and you turn around and go back. I remember one trip in particular with our family when our kids were little guys. You always have all this stuff if you have little kids that you have to pack and remember and take along with you. And I remember four times we turned around and went back for something that we had forgotten. And this was not that kind of a trip. There was no turning back for your favorite, you know, sheepskin cloak or whatever. You know, if you left it, you lost it. They're on the run and they're not turning back. So Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Now, there's a lot here as well. So presumably Laban and his sons, they're gone. They're with the flocks, shearing especially flocks of that number, took a long time. So the tents are unguarded. And Rachel steals her father's idols. And this is one of those where we're not really sure why. I mean, could it be that Rachel was polytheistic and she believed in many gods and so she's covering her bases and making sure that all the gods are going with them as she now goes to this land she's never been to, Jacob's homeland? Or could it be that Um, she's taking these things that belong to her dad that some scholars believe actually validated whoever owned them as the heir to the estate. So these are basically not like a will, but something with that kind of legal power where if you had these in your possession, it showed that you were the rightful heir to the estate. And so maybe she feels like she's getting back at dad that way. Maybe she just is trying to get back at dad and out of contempt She takes his stuff. We don't know, but this is what we do know. She steals something very, very important to her dad. And we're going to come back to that in just a bit. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Armenian, the Armen, rather, and that's also another name for Syrian, Laban the Syrian, by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had, crossed the Euphrates River, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. And on the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Jacob is on the run. He has a three-day head start on Uncle Laban. So taking his relatives with him, Laban pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Now, Jacob's moving a lot of flocks and a lot of people. Uncle Laban, it says, just took his relatives with him. So he's traveling lighter and faster, and it still takes him seven days to catch up with Jacob. That's how fast he's moving. They are cruising, but he does catch up with them. Then God came to Laban the Armin in a dream at night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. You ever had a dream like that? Probably not. But I think if I did, I'd be paying attention to that. Because this is God himself appearing to Laban in a dream and saying, look, pal, You're getting a little big for your britches. And understand, you're on a very short leash, and I'm at the end of that leash. And you keep that in mind as you come and confront your son-in-law. And the way this is being written is this is not obviously a happy occasion, but this is a reckoning that's going to happen. Uncle Laban is hot. He is angry. 
and there is going to be a showdown and there's going to be a face-off here. And the way this is being written is it's basically saying it's all of Uncle Laban and his relatives against all of Jacob. Jacob's alone. And this is what's coming his way. So Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him and Laban and his relatives camped there too. That must have been an awkward occasion. And then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You've deceived me and you carried off my daughters like captives in war. Now there's all sorts of wrong with this. Number one, who are Leah and Rachel? Are they not Jacob's wives? Some boundaries being crossed here? Yeah. And to add further to the insult, he's saying, you're like a raiding band who came in and stole my family and then took them away from me. Man, no guilt and manipulation happening here, right? What does he go on to say? Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Okay, that's fair. That is what Jacob's doing. Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps and you can just hear his daughters rolling their eyes going, seriously, Dad? Is that the best you can come up with? Because what happened in Genesis 30 when Jacob tried to leave Laban? Laban wouldn't let him leave. So Jacob is supposed to go and reason with his uncle and say, yeah, you know, God appeared to me and told me it's time to leave. How well would that have gone over? What was he supposed to do, right? And so this is almost laugh out loud crazy that he would be saying this. It's like, seriously, Uncle Laban? But he goes on, you didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. Probably more eye rolls at this point. You've done a foolish thing. Again, not a compliment. I have the power to harm you. Meta message, Jacob, you're lucky that God has intervened or I would take you out. But last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And presumably, Laban is going as close to that line as he can with everything he's saying here. Now you've gone off because you long to return to your father's household. Um, by the way, why did you steal my gods? Good question. So Jacob answers Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. Probably a legit concern. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. Uh-oh. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there's anything of yours here with me. And if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. Jacob just inadvertently, unintentionally put Rachel's life at risk by what he said. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. And after he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now, I want you to imagine with me, my family and I go to my, my parents' house tonight and we celebrate Father's Day and as we're about to leave, we have this conflict and my dad accuses me of stealing something from our family, his family rather, him and my mom. And so he comes out and he begins to search my car and has all of us empty our pockets. How would that feel? Profoundly devaluing, profoundly demeaning and that's exactly what's happening here. Their dad is going through all of their stuff because he does not believe Jacob. So again, this, this is not a happy moment. 
But now the narrator goes on to tell us something very significant. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent, but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my lord. I can't stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched, but could not find the household gods. Now, any Hebrew reader or Hebrew hearer of these words would have caught all of this detail, and they would have caught the irony here. Culturally, there is no way Laban is going to search that saddlebag. His daughter just basically declared that, rightfully so, off limits because of what she says was happening to her. But the irony here is that you and I have seen God is all over what's going on here in this whole process of telling Jacob it's time to leave the land, of blessing Jacob. We see God's presence, his activity, his work all throughout this passage. But these false gods are completely mocked and discredited and ridiculed in this whole exchange of what's happening here. This is basically saying, yeah, Uncle Laban, you're missing the very work of the one true God and you can't find your false gods. God, the real God, is present everywhere in this story, and the false gods are just that. They're false gods. There's a whole lot going on here. So Jacob, at this point, is understandably angry, and he takes Laban to task. What is my crime? How have I wronged you that you hunt me down? And now you have searched through all my goods. What have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine and let them judge between the two of us. I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for 20 years I was in your household. I worked for 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would have surely sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship in the toil of my hands And last night he rebuked you. Everything Jacob says here is true. All of it. So how would anyone reasonably respond to this? How's Uncle Laban going to respond? Well, certainly he's going to say, Jacob, you know what? You're right and I'm wrong. And I ask your forgiveness. I apologize. So what does Uncle Laban say? Laban answered Jacob, the women are my daughters. The children are my children. And the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? Poor Uncle Laban, right? Don't you feel sorry for him? No exaggeration going on here right? No manipulation going on here. No selfishness going on here. And this incredible resignation of, well, you know, I can't really do anything about it. Wow, what's missing here? An apology. There is no apology here whatsoever. Unbelievable. 
But look what's going to happen next. So come now, says Laban, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us because I don't trust you, Jacob. And that's what this is all about. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap and they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Jagar Sahudutha and Jacob called it Gilead. Now, that first name is in Aramaic. It's the only Aramaic that is in the book of Genesis. And then, of course, that next word is Hebrew. They mean the same thing. What do they mean? Heap. But they couldn't even agree on the name. So they had to use a name from their own language. So Laban says, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it was called Gilead. It was also called Mizpah, or the watchtower, or the watching, because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we're away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take any wives beside my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. What's the meta message here? That Jacob is presumably, possibly going to abuse Laban's daughters. Or he's going to devalue them by taking more wives. Do you get the flavor of this? This is not friendly at all. This is all about mistrust, distrust, and assuming the worst of Jacob. It goes on to say, here is this heap, and here is the pillar I've set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, and you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father, Isaac. And he offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal, which is what you did when you made a covenant between two parties. And after they had eaten, they spent the night there. And early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And then he left and returned home. This is not a happy gathering and it is not a happy ending. And you thought your family had issues. Wow. But let's step back from this and see what it tells us about our Heavenly Father, about our God. Well, number one, He is faithful. And His faithfulness is all over this story. Remember back with me to Genesis 28. Jacob is on the run from his brother, really doesn't know where he's going. He's going somewhere into the region of Haran to find family. He has nothing. He's penniless. He's on the run for his life, and God appears to him in a dream and says, I'm going to bless you. In fact, I'm going to bless all people through you. And I'm going to be with you and I'm going to watch over you and I'm going to protect you and I'm eventually going to bring you back to your land and I will not leave you until I have done these things. And now think about the ark of Jacob's life. God brings him safely to Haran. He brings him to family. Jacob came there with nothing and he's leaving exorbitantly wealthy 20 years later with a huge family with incredible blessing and he's even leaving at peace with his uncle Laban as challenging as that has been but he is God truly has been faithful to him 
But what must it have been like in that 20 years for Jacob when it had been 20 years since he had heard from the Lord? Think he got discouraged? We know he did. Think it was difficult? We know it was. It tells us. Is there something in your life that you're waiting on God for? As you look at your life with whatever's going on right now, are you struggling to see his work? Wondering if he's really doing anything? But I think there's something very instructive here for us in this passage, and that is to experience the faithfulness of God, we gotta be looking for the work of God. And that takes some work on our side of things. It really is a discipline in many ways to ask God to show you his work and then to be looking for his work and then to trust his faithfulness because we're not always going to see his work. But this is a part of what it means to follow the Lord, is training yourself to do this, anchoring yourself to the reality that he is faithful. And I think there are a number of great examples of this. I could single a number of you out here this morning because you do this, you model this, you live this. Even when you're going through difficult times when God seems like he's not doing anything in your life, you're anchored to his faithfulness and to the promises he gives you. And one very public example of this has been the cancer journey that our Jay McKinney has been on. And for those of you who don't know who Jay McKinney is, he was our worship leader here for a couple years. And he has this very rare type of cancer that he has fought before and has had surgeries before and treatment before that keeps coming back. And he ha is in the middle of another run with it right now. He had a major surgery up at OHSU a couple weeks ago. Um, they did a lot of work on him. And he's got a long healing process ahead of him. And he posts on Caring Bridge, sometimes multiple times a day, just what's going on. It's very raw, it's very real. And yet you see this constant arc of choosing to look for God's work and looking for God's faithfulness. And really the lens by which we see God's faithfulness through is thankfulness. In a culture where we're told to focus on what we don't have and to complain and what have you because of what we don't have, well, how often do we look at what we do have? How often do we take stock of what God has already given us? And Jay McKinney is doing this in his journey. And I just want to share with you something he posted a couple days ago. He's home from OHSU. He came home this last week but, uh, and still has a long journey ahead of him. But this is the type of thing he would post. I've been through quite a few emotions today. FOMO, fear of missing out. Small pity parties followed by regrouping and refocusing and realizing how I respond to the things I can't control is where the game is won or lost. Laughter as I watch some comedians on YouTube. Peace, as I feel God's sovereignty. Joy in the expression of love and care I have received from so many of you. Do you see what's going on here? Thankfulness is not about denying something that's hard. It's not about pretending things are better than they are. Since we're talking about it, by the way, Scripture never, ever tells you or me we have to pretend things are better than they are. That's not God's word. We don't ever have to put a happy face on things when things are painful and, and difficult. But do you see the progression here? 
There's a deliberate action here on Jay's part to find what he does have to be thankful for. Man, he is trying to recover from major, major surgery. In a lot of pain, has a long journey ahead of him. I don't see any pretending going on here. This is pretty authentic and pretty real, but there is this discipline, this focus of looking for God's faithfulness because God is faithful because he's powerful. Now, when you think about God's power, what images, what thoughts come to mind? How about God's power in the hard stuff? Since this context is about family dysfunction and difficulty and pain, how about there? Does God have the power to work through that? Absolutely, he does. There is no dysfunction that God can't work through. And I think that's important for us to remember because in all fairness, myself included, every family is dysfunctional. Every family is is broken. For sure, there are degrees and depths of brokenness, but we're broken people in the hands of an amazing God who is redeeming us and restoring us and through the power of his spirit enabling us to be who he's created us to be. But still, there's a little bit of Uncle Laban in all of us. But God has the power to work through that. And no matter what's going on in your family, no matter how dysfunctional, painful, broken things are, God can and will work through that. I think that's one of the takeaways from this passage about our Heavenly Father. He's powerful and he's trustworthy. This God can be trusted. There is this contrast that goes on in the background throughout this story. Here you have a father, Laban, who is deceitful and manipulative and I think many levels, verbally abusive, who inflicts all sorts of pain. But then you also have this heavenly father in the background who is faithful, powerful, unchanging, constant, who keeps his word. That's exactly what our heavenly father is like. And that's what we can be like through the power of his spirit. In fact, this is applicable to all of us, but especially for you dads. We are most like God as people and as dads when we make a commitment and then keep it. One scholar has wisely said that we are most like God, all of us, when we make a promise and then we follow through with it. We're reflecting the character of our God when we do that. You want to be a loving, engaged dad? Then do what you say you will do. Keep your word. Keep your promises. Many years ago, when my son was little, he got this little remote-controlled boat, and we were really excited to go try it out. And so as the story goes, many years ago, we were visiting um, his grandparents in Olympia. And, uh, you know, every family has different names for different grandparents, and my, my wife's parents are um, Grammy and Papa. And it happened to be Grammy and me and Kylan, my son, um, down uh, there in the Bay at Olympia. 
to try out this new little boat. And it was December, and it had snowed the week before, and so there were still patches of snow here and there. It was cold. And as my son's putting this boat in the water, um, we're talking, and he's really concerned, and legitimately so, what happens if I lose it? What happens if it get out there, gets out there and it won't come back? Because he's really concerned that, that this boat come back. And so I said, well, I'll go get it. Not knowing what I was committing myself to fully. And so as the story goes, he put the boat in the water and off it went. It was really cool. It was going everywhere. And so he decided to take it out just as far as it could go. And he took it so far out that it lost signal and it just kept going. And he couldn't get it back. And so he looked at me and this cascade of emotions came over him and then, you know, alligator tears and he's really upset and understandably so because his boat went out there and didn't come back. And I look at Grammy and I go, oh boy. <laughs> now Puget Sound is cold every day of the year. But it was really cold that day. So I took off my shirt and jumped in the water and swam out to get his boat and got him his boat back. Because I'd made a promise. And therefore, I needed to keep my word. We serve a heavenly father who makes promises and always keeps them. Even the best of dads, the most consistent of dads, don't always keep their promises, and I'm one of them. I've told you a success story there, but there are promises and commitments I made that I, that I didn't keep. But this is what we do know, that when our Heavenly Father makes a promise to us, He keeps it, and we have to look no further than Jesus Christ to see that that's true and that that's real. As our worship team comes, we are reminded that this promise that was made to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob, that all people would eventually be blessed through them, found its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, this God who would come and die in our place to remove our brokenness, to give us his righteousness, to give us hope and peace and purpose in his presence. That is the fulfillment of, of God's promises. And so as we worship now, on a day when we honor our dads, will you honor your heavenly dad? Will you show honor to him by once again committing yourself to following him, to trusting him? Because the one thing that will always remain is his love, his love for you and his love for me because he's a good, good father because he does exactly what he says he will do and therefore we can trust him with all of us. So let's recommit ourselves to that here this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you that as you promised, you came and you gave your life for us to rescue us, to restore us, to give us hope and that you were the God who is truly the one who always does what you say you will do. And so Lord, we choose to remember your love for us, to sing about that love and to live out that love because it's not that we first loved you, it's that you have first loved us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And I hope you believe that because it is true.
He is faithful to keep his promises. He's faithful to keep his word. He's faithful to work, and he is faithful in answering prayer. We have prayer teams off to the sides here. If there's anything we can be praying for you about, please let us do so. We would love that privilege. But I'd like to leave you with one of the passages of where this song comes from that we just sang. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It may sound a little familiar because I read it to you last week, but here it is again. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ because he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come because this God keeps his promises and therefore this God can be trusted. And so let me pray his blessing over you from here. God, thank you again for this time we've had together to seek you, to discover you, to grow in you together. Thank you that you keep your word, that you always do what you say you will do, that you are completely trustworthy. And so God, as we go from here, would we love other thank people you for listening to sermon the way audio you have first Grace loved us. Community Church. And we thank for you more information for your faithfulness about service to times and ways name. to connect. Visit us Amen. online at graceccc.net. And we hope we get to see you next weekend. Happy Father's Day, and we'll see you again.